welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. This episode, set about 80 miles west of Dhaka in Bangladesh, is called Rabindranath Tagore's Kushtia Home. It was about this time that, discouraged by my inability to find a pristine India, I picked up a guidebook called Buildings of the British Raj in Bangladesh, written by the archaeologist Nizamuddin Ahmed. In it, there is a description of the Shalida Kutubari, the home in which the poet Rabindranath Tagore lived as a young man. Ahmed writes that there are, quote, few places in Bangladesh which can equal Shalida in its enchanting natural beauty and its unspoiled natural landscape, unquote. I probably would have paid no attention except, Chowdhury calls the oceanic Tagore the greatest of all Bengalis. Such praise from Chowdhury is almost inconceivable, and it tipped the scale, so I decided to take a look. Shalida is not the easiest trip to make. The nearest town is Kushtia, and getting that far involves, first of all, a 60-mile drive west from Dhaka through heavily irrigated lowlands to the Brahmaputra. From there, you can choose between a southerly route with a short ferry ride across the Brahmaputra and then, at least in 1991, an insane drive of infinite duration over about 100 miles of road under construction. The northern route calls for a longer ferry ride across and up the Brahmaputra then a drive some 60 miles west to the town of Pabna, followed by a second but short ferry across the Ganges. Pabna is just about the only place to stop for the night along this second route, and it was a good place for me to look around. Bangladesh, after all, has such a hopeless reputation, endless calamities, and infinite destitution. But a two-hours walk there at dusk cured me forever of thinking of that country as an international basket case. Piles of magenta mustard seed were spread out to dry on outdoor pavements. Later, they were brought to mill rooms, dark with belt-driven machinery, expressing an oil that made my eyes smart. Next door were carpenters, some splitting and sawing logs, others screwing planks together to form the seats of cycle rickshaws. There was a concrete casting works with piles of pipe and ornamental screenings and squat toilets that it had produced. There were shops where men assembled cotton undershirts with treadle sewing machines, others where the same machines were sewing automobile seat covers. There were electricians rewinding electrical motors. There were merchants selling sandals and others selling hand tractors. Off Pabna's main road and in the residential quarters of the town, horticulturalists grew flowers in plots fenced with sharpened bamboo stakes. Nearby there were houses from whose windows came the sound of the BBC. Young men literally crowded around a big table in the town library, which was one of the dozens of mansions abandoned at the partition of India in 1947. Rabindranath Tagore's family, like Nero Chaudhry's, had been part of the Hindu elite, Indeed, the Tagores had once been among the wealthiest families of Bengal. Shalida was only one of their properties when Rabindranath was sent there by his father in the 1880s to be the estate manager. Tagore had spent the better part of 20 years there, and he returned to it to translate into English the poems that, published as Gitanjali, won him the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1913. 
The Ganges Ferry, beyond Pabna, is a comparatively simple matter, hardly more than an old barge with a strapped-on motor, but the river itself is much reduced from its historic size by the construction upstream in India of the Faraka Barrage, which diverts a large part of the Ganges to another distributary, the Hooghly, which flows past Calcutta. The barge chugs across the reduced Ganges peaceably enough, at least in comparison with the strong flow of the Brahmaputra, and there is a fine view of the nearby and mile-long Harding Bridge, which was opened in 1915 and remains the bravest of all the British efforts to lace Bengal with steel. The first time I came to Kushti, it was in April, and by the misbegotten way along the highway under construction. Exhausted, I threw myself on the mercy of the deputy commissioner. He was kind enough to ask in only a slightly patronizing way if he was correct in surmising that I required a room, a cool room, I believe. He also asked if I required alcohol. He was offering vodka, left over from the visit of a Russian diplomat. The deputy commissioner reached out a languid arm, his own house was not air-conditioned, picked up a phone, and arranged air-conditioned accommodation at the Kushtia district guest house. I wanted to see Tagore's home as early as possible the next morning, so my driver and I left the guest house at first light, just before six. A baker down the street was furiously kneading dough for his morning customers. With some hesitation, we made our way to an unbridged river, whose small amount of water was a trickle in the middle of several hundred yards of sand. The driver was from Dhaka and had not been here before. He was nervous, especially when told by people crossing the river on foot to drive right across. When we approached the water, he took on board a guide who could show us where to drive through the axle-deep water. Now we were on what turned out to be an island, bounded by this sand stream on the west and by the Ganges on the east. From neither this nor my subsequent winter visit, when I stayed on the island itself, do I remember a single other motor vehicle on the island. There were some trucks, even buses, I can see them crossing the sand, but I cannot remember them on the island. Tagore's house stands some seven or eight brick-paved and single-lane miles beyond the point where we crossed. As a building, it is not particularly interesting. Wooden, red, with two stories, laid out on a square, about 40 feet on a side. It has verandas on the upper floor, a hipped roof, and a cupola capped with a steeple. It also has a most peculiar boundary wall, red brick, with a white cap that undulates like a snaking jump rope. I had thought that the house might be locked up or used as a private residence, but I underestimated Tagore's reputation. In fact, the house is now a museum run by the government. It is well maintained, though with an emphasis on wall displays of photographs. Most of the original furnishings are gone. The most interesting relic, I thought, was an ancient lawnmower with the embossed name of a manufacturer in Newburgh, New York. The most interesting room in the house is actually the cupola, barely big enough for a desk, but walled with shutters that still open for a view over to the Ganges. It was here, apparently, that Tagore sat while he wrote the poems that entranced William Butler Yeats. I myself thought of John Muir and his cupola, in Martinez, California. I went outside and started walking, and there, on a lane close by, was a boy about ten years old, dressed in a western undershirt and a Bengali wraparound. He was standing with his feet buried a couple of inches in the dust. I thought of Nira Chowdhury, 
and of my compromising sandals. <clears throat> this is a reference to something earlier in, in the book where I was talking about uh, Chowdhury's childhood in Kishorganj, and he was pitying people who had to wear shoes and who couldn't just feel dust between their toes. Here were houses, too, like the ones Chowdhury remembered. Gabled or hip-roofed, they were mostly covered with corrugated sheet metal. The walls, however, were either mudded mud brick or simple reed matting. Chowdhury had written of such things, not only of the sheet metal, which was replacing thatch by the turn of the century, but also of the mud brick and reed mat walls. Today as then, the walls were scrupulously maintained, so the buildings look forever new, their colors indistinguishable from the earth on which they stand. In a fine book called An Indian Attachment, Sarah Lloyd writes of Punjabi farmers, quote, growing, unquote, their houses. And you know what she means when you see houses of mud and sticks that have been dug and chopped from the land they stand on. The extensive pumping facilities developed for irrigation east of the Brahmaputra have not reached out to Shalida, so most of the island's fields produce only one crop annually. That's why when I first came in the hot weather, most of the fields were fallow, with hard and light brown clods. A whiff of onions came through the air from one field that did get water from a well, but the only activity I saw was men coming to prepare the fallow fields. Like the boy, they wore only undershirts and wraparounds. Each man led a pair of bullocks, and each man carried a plow and a mallet. The plows could not have weighed more than 40 pounds. They consisted essentially of three pieces of wood, one for the handle, one for the share, and one to reach to the yoke. The mallet was more interesting, long-handled, and with a solid cylinder of wood as a hammer, it puzzled me until the men went to work, smashing clods one at a time. In a few months, the fields would be flooded for rice. That was why the paths that ran through the fields were elevated perhaps eight inches above the level of the ground. After the floods had come and long gone, I returned a second time. The ground was still mostly fallow, but on the few irrigated fields, people were busy with a sugarcane harvest. This was not the stout kind of cane typically found in India. It was so spindly that the stalks growing in the field were tied together in bundles of nine. Cane crushing was handled on the spot, with two metal drums set vertically and driven by a bullock walking round and round. Canes were thrust one at a time between the revolving drums to produce a trickle of straw-colored juice which was collected in five-gallon tins, quickly emptied into a furnace with a dozen or so uncovered boiling pans. Not one of the pans held more than a gallon of liquid, but a man sat above the furnace with a long-handled ladle and poured fluid from one pan to another with the nicety of titration. From the last pan he periodically drew off a heavy brown liquid. There, in yet more tins, the local process ended. Short of the solid blocks of brown sugar, produced so commonly in rural India. Most of the houses in the neighborhood were not bunched in hamlets, but stood as isolated homesteads, marked by mangoes, palms, and great stacks of rice straw. I approached one that covered perhaps half an acre, but the compound was well screened by a beautiful herringbone-woven reed fence. 
and I could hardly see anything beyond the hipped roof of corrugated metal, supported by walls of mudded mud brick, pierced by tiny windows with bamboo grates. I saw no one inside the compound except women at work in an outdoor kitchen, and I turned away. I came to another farmstead, and nearby a simple bridge across a dry wash. I sat down on the bridge railing to watch a couple of bullocks nibbling straw from a large, coarsely woven basket. Nearby there was a haystack from which the animals had nibbled until it was almost undermined. Beyond, there were huts on smooth, shaded dirt. Two or three young men came up and stared. One of them, it turned out, had studied at a college in Kushtia, and he struggled with his English to explain that the farmstead in front of us belonged to a relative, a poor man, but I was welcome to look. And so I walked around that immaculate courtyard, which had buildings on all four sides. Each was raised on a mudded platform about two feet high, and each was built of mats and thatch. No mud brick here except for the platforms. Against one wall stood a bicycle, and a couple of utensils, a bowl, a water pot, a bamboo pole. Against another wall leaned one of those plows, as elegant as a fishing rod. In a corner between two buildings there was a screened-in kitchen, a patch of ground on which a girl, perhaps ten years old, squatted to tend a few pots. She wore a western-style dress, yellow like cornbread. The young man now wanted to take me to his own home, which was a couple of hundred yards away. A dozen people were soon crowded into a small room, which was furnished with only a bed and a bench. I gathered that though he was a college graduate, he had no job. I avoided the foolish question about working the family's land, for as soon as we made it to his house, he disappeared for a moment and returned wearing a long-sleeved dress shirt. His mother appeared in widow's white and through her son half-insisted that I eat breakfast. She reappeared in a few minutes with a large bowl of leathery puffed rice sweetened with crude sugar. It was fine, but the family was disappointed, and I hope no more than that, when I repeatedly declined the water they offered. I thanked them and wandered along the river. Music far away on the Pabna side drifted across, so little impeded that when I first heard it, I thought that a man standing in the shallows in front of me must be holding a tiny radio. I think now of one of Tagore's untitled poems, Betangeli 74. Quote, the evening air is eager with the sad music of the water. Ah, it calls me out into the dusk. In the lonely lane, there is no passerby. The wind is up. The ripples are rampant in the river. I know not if I shall come back home. I know not whom I shall chance to meet. There at the fording in the little boat, the unknown man plays upon his lute. Unquote. The Ganges here is calm all the time, now that the Faraka barrage is in place. Certainly when I saw the water surface offered a perfect reflection of the small boats that moved up and down, sometimes with motors, sometimes with sweeps, sometimes with one man walking on the shore and pulling a rope attached to the top of the mast. In the slighted evenings, I saw almost no electric lights. One small electrically driven gristmill shut down by dark. Oil lanterns were ignited in people's homes and also on the rear axles of the cycle rickshaws clustered at the occasional road crossings. 
It was a long time until the sun rose, and children gathered at dawn around small bonfires, lit to repel the chill, made worse by the damp. The sun rose magnificently, and I think now of Gatanjali 57, where Tagore writes of, quote, light, my light, the world-filling light, the eye-kissing light, heart-sweeting light, unquote. The difference is that I see a spectacular sunrise and Tagore sees divinity. It's like the Muscogee ball sticks, and there's not much doubt about it. Time out again. What? Muscogee ball sticks. I have to go back to page four for a moment, and here's the relevant paragraph. I think now of the Muscogee leader I know who recently brought a pair of ball sticks to a classroom. I asked him why those handmade sticks of hickory were the only beautiful things in the room, why the chairs and tables and windows were so utterly devoid of beauty. He said that he understood me, but that I was using the wrong words. What the ball sticks had, he said, was spirit, and he meant this very literally. The spirit of the hickory, preserved as he shaped the wood from its original form. Okay, so back to where I was. The difference is that I see a spectacular sunrise and Tagore sees divinity. It's like the Muscogee ball sticks, and there's not much doubt about it, for Tagore continues, this is Gatanjali 59, Yes, I know there is nothing but thy love, O beloved of my heart, this golden light that dances upon the leaves, these idle clouds sailing across the sky, this passing breeze leaving its coolness upon my forehead, It would be a mistake, I think, to take these lines metaphorically. I think they are absolutely literal. That is why Tagore seems so obsessive to us, for little else matters to him but this glimpse of divinity. Quote, under thy great sky in solitude and silence, this is Gitanjali 76, with humble heart shall I stand before thee face to face. What makes all this so difficult for us is not Tagore's faith, we're used to dealing with that, or at least with professions of it, but his sense that we are in a universe inconceivably full of life, growing in every direction and going nowhere. That's where he sticks in our craws. Oh, we know better rationally, but we insist that progress somehow not only makes us comfortable, it makes sense. We insist that the universe will somehow sanction our strenuous efforts so that we don't have to worry about why we're so busy. Not Tagore. He will have none of this nonsense. He shames us in our narrowness. I imagine that he must have been sitting in that little Shalida cupola when he looked across the island toward the river and wrote in one of Gitanjali's last poems, 92, quote, When I think of this end of my moments, the barrier of the moments breaks, and I see by the light of death thy world with its careless treasures. Rare is its lowliest seat, rare is its meanest of lives. Things that I longed for in vain and things that I got, let them pass. Let me but truly possess the things that I ever spurned and overlooked. You can climb up to the cupola yourself. You can swing open the shutters on all sides. Here he sat, you may think. When he wrote in Gitanjali 96, When I go from hence, let this be my parting word, that what I have seen is unsurpassable. 